of the weakest forms of argument is to present a hypothetical situation trying to disprove a thesis statement. A hypothetical situation is derived from the imagination of one who is already opposed to the statement but has no real proof other than his or her unwillingness to accept the statement. The Sadducees tried this once with Jesus and ended up only revealing the ignorance which accompanied their great learning. It's not Easter, but I'm going to talk to you about the resurrection. Not the resurrection of the Lord, but our own. <clears throat> I was fascinated listening to the gospel reading. Uh, how as humans, we are so prone to come up with a hypothetical situation that we can use to prove something wrong. And so today we're given a very um, ridiculous hypothetical situation. The resurrection of Jesus is a foundational belief of the Christian faith. And we're told this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, where he says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation, there's that word foundation, of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are foundational doctrines for the Christian faith. Now the whole idea of living again after one has died is a challenge to the rational mind. Long before Jesus was crucified, there was skepticism about any kind of resurrection from the dead. The skepticism then and the cynicism now, today, both of them arise from a human reasoning trying to comprehend spiritual realities. Now this is made plainly evident in the gospel reading this morning about the Sadducees. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. They were setting up a hypothetical situation to try to trap Jesus on the concept of resurrection. We're told that they did not believe this concept. If you need to know the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, both of them were a ruling class among the Jews. And the Pharisees prided themselves on strict obedience to the law. So when they looked in the mirror, they said, oh, I'm so fair, I see. But the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. That's how you remember The Sadducees were the party of high priests. Y'all can quit laughing now. Aristocratic families and merchants, the wealthier elements of the population. They were also what we would call more liberal in their views because you can see they didn't believe in the resurrection and that's where we cast liberalism. The Sadducees tried to use the law of Moses uh, to make the resurrection an unbelievable farce by positing seven, seven brothers. According to the law, if a man died without having a child, his brother was to take his sister-in-law as wife. 
and raise up children for him. So the Sadducees proposed seven brothers, each dying without a child by the same woman. They wanted Jesus to tell them whose wife she would be in the resurrection. They were applying human understanding to a spiritual reality, which is a common problem that I have to deal with almost daily in the questions and challenges that I get from people on the scriptures. But it's also a problem that I'm going to illustrate a little bit later on in this message. In Matthew's account of this story, Jesus said, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These men whom Jesus scolded were students of the law. They were students of the Jewish scriptures. But Jesus said they did not perceive the meaning of those scriptures. They were well read in the Torah, but they did not understand it. And many people today are well read in the Bible, but have little understanding of the power of God. So Jesus set the men straight about married life on the other side of the veil. We read, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of resurrection. Now we see from this that marriage is not something we will experience on the other side of this life. From that, we can extrapolate that life itself will be very different from what we know now. However, the Bible does not give us much insight into what life will be like over there, wherever there is. Okay? And even though we may not be able to describe or define anything about it, we know that the resurrection of the body is a foundational belief for our Christian faith. Paul tells us in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's foundational to our confession as Christians. Now challenges to the resurrection were still prevalent in Paul's day. And he used the Sadducees' disbelief to set up a quarrel which resulted in his being released from Jewish custody. Towards the end of Acts, we read, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and, and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? That's challenging the Pharisees and their position. The disagreement between the Jewish parties was not about Jesus, but about the future resurrection of the body of human beings. And we can see that vehement arguments about opinions is nothing new. Something we go through on a regular basis with every major election, with different conversations 
there can be pretty volatile arguments. It was way back then. A fight broke out between the dissenting parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Roman guard became concerned that Paul would be torn apart by them. So he had Paul removed, which eventually led to his being brought to Rome. Now, most of our understanding concerning the resurrection of the body comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. He begins that chapter by reminding his readers of the gospel which he preached. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now notice that Paul included the resurrection of Jesus as part of his good news proclamation. He then goes into his defense of the resurrection as a fact and what it means to us as believers. Apparently, there were believers in the new church of Corinth who also rejected the teaching of the resurrection of the body. And he writes in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now their objection was not to the resurrection of Jesus, but to the resurrection of the human body. And Paul pounces on this with a statement which also reveals the humanity of Jesus. He says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there's no such thing as the resurrection of the human body, which had died, then Jesus could not have been raised because he was fully, truly human. He existed in a physical body. We also know, though, from the scriptures that things changed after the resurrection. His body took on a different quality. He was able to pass through walls into a room which had the doors locked. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now this appearance disturbed the already fearful disciples. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Yet his body still had the same outward appearance as before. He said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now I need to be clear on this, that this appearance and some of the others happened before his ascension into heaven. Apparently things changed once the ascension occurred because we don't see him on earth anymore. We don't see a physical manifestation of Jesus in any way. Once he ascended, he was no longer visible to the natural eye. Now this has given rise to all the speculation about what we will be like when we are resurrected or at least after we die. What's it going to be like when we go to heaven? If we return to our story in Luke, we'll see that one of those imaginations have taken hold on the minds of most people. He said, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now Mark and Matthew say this somewhat differently. 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now we have no clear description of angels in heaven, yet for some reason, many people think we will be floating around on clouds playing a harp. I guess this is because it is a sweet image of a baby-like innocence. People have also said that we will live in our own little cabin in the corner of glory land somewhere, which is also based on something that Jesus said. In John chapter 14, he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, hopefully you can see from this that neither the cloud nor the cabin have anything to do with our experience on the other side. That is, between this life and the next. Paul argues with anyone who would try to describe what that life would be like. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. He first argues from the natural with that which, with which we're familiar. He shows that death is not only natural, but is a necessary part of life. And the necessity of death is followed by a resurrection from the dead. And that new life is not in any way the same as the former. In other words, there's very little similarity between a grain of wheat and a wheat plant, even with the full head of grain. It may contain a lot of those little seeds, but the plant itself is completely different. And this is the logic that Paul applies to our resurrection. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, that is the closest we will ever come to a description of what we will be like after we die. Even, not, I'm not able to research every single near-death experience. But even those who have a near-death experience are the ones I could find do not report anything about the lifestyle on the other side. They talk about the tunnel that they go through, the light, the love, the peace, whatever. But they don't talk about how people are living so while we may want to have our answers to our questions about life after death, it seems that we must wait until we get there to fully understand. Not having those answers, however, should in no way hinder our belief in the resurrection of our bodies at some future time. This resurrection is foundational, as I have said, to our faith, and without it, we are living a lie, or at best, a fairy tale. Paul said it this way. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he is saying is that our hope in Christ must 
transcend this natural plane of existence. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Jesus, therefore, is the proof of the resurrection for everyone. We know that when he was raised from the dead that Easter Sunday morning, many others were raised at the same time. Now here he is called the first fruits, which in ordinary language indicates that there is more to follow. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, there are more to follow. So, what is the purpose of this message? What, what am I trying to communicate to you? What should be your takeaway? Simply this, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Can you describe it? No. Can you tell when it's going to happen? No. Can you tell anything about it? No. But we believe it. 